It is no secret that I'm a Star Wars fan, and this is peak time to be a Star Wars fan because they're always cranking out new material. When I grew up, Star Wars, it's like after the first three movies were over, we all wanted to be Luke Skywalker because he was the hero of the story and the story was over. And for like a long time, that was it, those three movies. And Luke was clearly the central character. He, he was rescuing the princess in the dark Death Star castle. I mean, and George Lucas didn't reach very far for this story, right? Little farm boy goes off and rescues the princess in the, in the castle and brings her back and wins the day. He's the hero. And then these prequels came out, these backstories came out, and honestly, at first, they weren't very well received, right? They were kind of like, yeah, the acting's bad, the writing dialogue's awkward, like, we're not sure, technology's great, stories, eh. But one thing it revealed was that really, Luke is not the central figure in the story. That it's not just this one little three-movie trilogy and Luke's the hero. Once they add the first three stories, it becomes very apparent, spoiler alert, that Anakin is the true main character of the story. The hero that runs through all six of those movies. It becomes, literally, they start calling it later, the Skywalker saga, right? And so this one little trilogy becomes this expanded story, and it's the story of the rise, the fall, and the redemption of Anakin. It's a bigger story. Well, we tend to do the same thing. I don't, maybe this is just me. We tend to do the same thing with the New Testament. We're all really familiar with it. We know the story. Jesus came at Christmas, did a bunch of miracles, died on the cross, rose again from the dead. We celebrate that at Easter. And then the rest of the New Testament is Paul and Peter teaching the church how to be the church. And Jesus is the central figure of the New Testament. So there's a little bit of breakdown in this metaphor. You get it. But how many of you have done a quiet time in Leviticus lately? Right? So we think we're really familiar with Philippians. We're really familiar with Ephesians. Numbers. When's the last time you read it? Right? And so we tend to separate these stories. And what we need to realize is the Old Testament and the New Testament are really one much greater story. You can't unhook them. You can't tear them apart. You can't just go, it's not, I've said this before, it's my old joke, Old Testament, God was grumpy, Jesus came, now he's happy. You know what I mean? But it's a much bigger story than that. It's this incredible plan that God has for his people. So we're going to, and that's been kind of the heart of this series, we've been talking about finding Christ in the Old Testament. And we've talked about types and we've talked about stories and patriarchs and how they do that. And we talked about the promise that was in the beginning in Genesis 3, which, by the way, that'd be episode 1, you know. <laughs> like, here's the beginning of the story. And as soon as people fell, as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed, God already in the garden said, the seed of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. He makes a gospel promise right there in the Garden of Eden. And then the rest of the Bible is this unfolding story of how that promise is accomplished. So we're going to talk about finding Christ in the Old Testament, really in the way we normally think about Christ in the Old Testament, and that's through prophecy. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. We are going to look through that in a few verses by a few verses today. And you will see that Isaiah, writing hundreds if not thousands of years before Jesus arrived, had something to say. Who has believed what we have heard? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them, before him, like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we would look at him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and held with no account. Okay, first couple of verses. Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant. In fact, if you go back and read 52, he, in the very 52, he sets this passage up. He's talking about this theme. It's really a song about the suffering ser- servant in Isaiah. And so he's carrying into it and giving some detail. Now we kind of, it's like, it's like the ultimate spoiler alert. We read this and go, we know who he's talking about. But there's little hints in there. Like in verse 1 and verse 2, he talks about him being a root of Jesse or like a, a plant that springs up. He's making direct reference to King David, who is of the seed of Jesse, a sprout of Jesse. He quotes himself in Isaiah 11.10. In other words, he's talking about the descendant of David who will be the Messiah. So there's your indicator. He's already said, hey, this suffering servant is going to be a descendant of King David. He's kind of giving you a wink and a nod using this sprout of Jesse reference. Then he says something very interesting, and you may have heard this around Christmas time or around Easter time when we talk about Jesus. He says he has no majesty and no, nothing about his appearance that the world would desire him. And I've heard preachers talk about the fact that meant Jesus was ugly. Okay, I don't know, maybe. But really what it means is that a wandering shepherd in the desert in the New Testament with 12 disciples was not desired by a world filled with kings and emperors and armies. There was nothing about Jesus that was particularly desirous of the world. In fact, it says he was despised. He was rejected. He wasn't even accepted by his own people. There's a point in the story when he's in his public ministry in Jerusalem and they try to push him off a cliff. So there was nothing about who Jesus is. And by the way, this was written before Jesus, okay? B.C. (laughs) So Isaiah is making a prediction about what Jesus' ministry would look like and the way that he'll be received as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the descendant of David. There's nothing about this wandering prophet. And it goes from not only not desiring him, not wanting to elevate him, to out and out rejection of this suffering servant. Verse 4 through 6. Now these are kind of the key verses of this whole passage. You'll see why in a second. Surely He has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted Him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. You've probably heard this verse before. But He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the punishment that made us whole. And by His bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. If there's a famous section of Isaiah 53, it's that one, right? Bruised for our iniquities, crushed, took on our disease, took on our infirmities. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus had diseases. It's a reference to corruption. He took on our sinful corruption for us. He was crushed for us. 
And his crushing is what provided us with healing. He took on our sin, wounded for our sin. Jesus endured what he endured on the cross because of what we do Monday through Saturday. Now, he endured all that pain and all of that punishment because of us, because of our own disobedience, because of our own desire to build our own kingdom rather than building God's kingdom, because of us and our choice and our sin and our nature. And I love it. It says in verse 5, His punishment restores us. That's such a counterintuitive idea that this suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about, now we know he's talking about the Messiah. Now we know he's been rejected by the people of his time when he comes. And he is still rejected today by people who don't buy into who he is and don't believe he is who he said he was. But it's those very people that he was crushed and bruised It's those very people who eventually come around and say, hey, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. My kingdom plan doesn't work. I need a savior. And the suffering servant was crushed for them too. Now verse 6, Isaiah is probably making a reference to a Jewish practice called the scapegoat. Okay? There was a Jewish ritual that's given to us in Leviticus. For all of you that said you hadn't done quiet time in Leviticus yet, you're going to get a dose of Leviticus. This is Leviticus 15. No, wait. Leviticus, yes, Leviticus 16, 15 to 16. You can see why I get those mixed up. This is what he says in that verse. He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it upon the mercy seat before the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall do for the tent of of meeting, which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. He shall make atonement in the sanctuary because of the sins of the people of Israel. Now the scapegoat, this ritual that I'm describing... By the way, aren't you glad we're living in the New Testament? For church this morning, bring in the goat. (laughs) I mean, but this is what they did. They would bring in a goat and they would pour all the blood on this goat and send it off. And it it was a putting the iniquities of the people on the scapegoat. That's where we get that phrase, right? You've heard people, he's just a scapegoat for whatever. They don't know they're talking about the Bible when they use that phrase. But it's the iniquities of the world, the iniquities in this case of Israel being placed on this goat in this Old Testament ritual that Isaiah seems to be referencing when he says, they placed all of our iniquities on the suffering servant. So this Messiah is doing all this for us. He's being, in verse 7, he's oppressed, it says. He's oppressed. Let me get back to Isaiah here. This is verse 7 through 9. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before the shearers, he is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? 
For he was cut off from the land of living and stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had no violent, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Remember who we're talking about, right? Spoiler alert. Sunday school answer is Jesus. Isaiah is saying all of this long before these events happened. And when Jesus is standing in front of Pontius Pilate, what does he do? When he gets offered an opportunity to defend himself on trial, what does he do? He says nothing. In fact, Pilate says, are you a king? And he said, Jesus essentially says to him, if, you were, if I was a king of this world, my army of angels would come and take you out. You'd have no shot. So he allowed himself to be led, to be punished for our sake when he could have resisted. This wasn't Jesus overpowered. This was Jesus submitting himself for our sake, for the iniquities of us all, as Isaiah calls it. So what about oppressed? Well, he's standing in front of these authorities. These authorities, it says he's carried away by an unfaithful or a, a, a false accusation. No violence, no penalty, no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was completely innocent, yet he was found guilty by an oppressive authority over his day. The rulers of Israel that wanted to see this threat to their power taken out, and the rulers of Rome who want to keep everything under, under Roman control leads to Jesus being executed. But we know there's more to the story than that. In fact, it's his obedience that makes him worthy of sacrifice for us. Look at verse 10. There we go. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin... He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish, he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot, allot him a portion with the great. Interesting, there's some interesting phrases in here. It was the will of the Lord that he would be crushed. It was the will of the Lord that he shall be crushed. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. And what does this tell us? Remember our context, right? This is not, we're in the prequel trilogy. We're still in the pre-story, pre before the main story. And he says, he will be crushed because of God's will. What does that tell us? That Genesis 3 was a plan initiated. That the types we see in the Old Testament of the serpent being lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy be fulfilled from Isaiah into Jesus' life, as we see those things happen, the early story is setting up the greater story. It's all one story. And when he says it's the will of the Lord in that story, or in this passage, it's always been God's plan to call and redeem Himself a people. He never was going to leave us in our sin and doubt and destruction and corruption. He has always had a plan. 
that included the sacrifice of Jesus himself. In verse 11, it says he sees a light. You start to see, what sees light is this idea that you start to see him being vindicated for his death. In other words, there's some implications in 10 through 12 about resurrection. He will see the light of life again. Isaiah is predicting the triumph over death by the suffering servant. We read this earlier, but the chapter verse 12 sounds a lot like Philippians 2. Oops, not me, it's not verse 12. Verse, 10, verse 11. <laughs> Out of his anguish he shall see the light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one will make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Philippians 11, 511. His name will be above every name. That's the connection I was trying to make. There's a prediction that the suffering servant will, because of his obedience and because of his suffering and because of his death, will be elevated. Now here's the irony of ironies. The people of Jesus' time rejected him as a prophet, rejected him as Messiah, even though he was feeding 5,000 people with some bread, bringing people back from, light, from death like Lazarus, doing incredible miracles, and they rejected him. And Jesus has two conversations in the New Testament with people about the Old Testament. Remember I told you, if Jesus kind of counts the Old Testament as part of the story, then it's part of the story. The first conversation he has, and we talked about this some last week, is he has this deep conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus comes to him and goes, in secret, by the way, John slips off, I mean, Nicodemus slips off in the dark and comes to Jesus because he wants to get the scoop, but he doesn't want to mess up his reputation with the other religious leaders. He goes, you're clearly a great man. Tell me what's going on. And Jesus says things like, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? You know, how does that work? And the irony here is in John chapter 3, verse 9, as Jesus unfolds what his purpose is and how this works and how salvation works, Nicodemus is confused. He's like, I don't get it. And Jesus' response in verse 9 is, and you call yourself a teacher of the people? Now, I don't know about you. I don't want that conversation with Jesus, right? Where Nicodemus is asking questions and he doesn't get it. And Jesus is like, aren't you supposed to have been to seminary? You don't understand what we're talking about here? You know, that would not be fun, right? What's he talking about? He says, you're a teacher of Israel. What is a teacher of Israel supposed to know? The Old Testament. Nicodemus has probably read Isaiah 53 in the temple. He's probably read Genesis in the temple. He has seen the Old Testament scriptures unfold in front of his eyes and at least he comes to Jesus out of curiosity and says, are you the Messiah? What's going on here? And then when Jesus kind of explains it, he's like, I don't get it. But he had access to all these scriptures. I don't get it. Well, why don't you get it? You should be able to see it, right? Then Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, one of my favorite Bible studies and all the stories in all the New Testament. Jesus is meeting with some folks after he's resurrected. They're walking down the road, talking and hanging out and sharing stories. And they're, they're upset because their Savior, their Messiah has died, right? They're worried about that. They're like, hadn't you not heard that Jesus died? And what are we supposed to do now? We're, we've lost our shepherd. We're in trouble. And this is the conversation in verse 25 through 27. 
Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. There's another one of those conversations I want to have with Jesus, right? Verse 25. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted them to the things about himself in all of the Scripture. Jesus, walking with these people on the road to Emmaus, goes, hey, have you seen Isaiah 53? Have you seen the story of the serpent in Deuteronomy? Have you seen all of these scriptures? He's, he's unfolding the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus for followers of Jesus going, that are disheartened and discouraged because their Messiah is gone. And at that time, they didn't know that was Jesus they were talking to. He opens their eyes later so they can understand he was, that was Jesus? By the way, I don't want to be called a fool by Jesus, right? But he expounded all of what Moses had to say and what all of the prophets had to say. And if you're keeping track, when I keep saying unfolded prophecies, there are 456 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by the life and ministry of Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament cannot be separated. They're one greater story of the redemption of God's people. And Jesus is the central figure of it all. Jesus himself taught his followers about all those prophecies while they're walking on a road to Emmaus. He unfolded all that Moses and all the prophets had to say. The Old Testament is an account of God bringing his people to the promised land. And the New Test and being with them. In fact, when he gives us the commandments, what does he say? I will be your God and you will be my people. Then he says some stuff we don't like to hear sometimes, like, when you keep my commands, I will bless you. If you don't keep my commands, I will curse you. Hence the book of Judges. <laughs> right? I mean, there's this on unfolding historical story that goes from a garden and two people to the seed of the seed of Eve, to the people of God, to Abraham who he promises his descendants will be like the stars. Episode 1, episode 2, episode 3. <laughs> There's this unfolding story of progression of God going and dwelling in the tabernacle and being with his people and taking them through the... I'm not going to give you the whole Old Testament, but you're starting to get the idea, right? Then he calls King David, a man after his own heart. King Solomon builds a temple, a place where God will dwell with his people. That's all still true. The Old Testament might be pointing to what Jesus is going to do. Isaiah 53 certainly is. And then Jesus, the Gospels tell us everything that Jesus said. In fact, John says, if he told you everything that Jesus said, we couldn't even fit it in all the books in the world. So it's the highlights, <laughs> the important highlights. But the Gospels record what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. And then you have Acts and the, the epistles of the early church figuring out what it means to be a people of God. Only now it's not just a Jewish nation, and it's not just an Old Testament people. It's us. And 2,000 some odd years later, we're still a part of this story. God has not given up on His plan. 
God has not stopped his plan. It starts in the, in the garden with people created in the image of God who fall. Then they try to figure out what that means. They send, he sends his son, we said we read in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up for us so that he may be exalted. The church tries to figure it out for however long it's going to happen until God ultimately fulfills his ultimate promise. And there's a new heaven and a new earth and a, the new Jerusalem coming down to us so that God may dwell among his people. Starts to sound, the end starts to sound a whole lot like the beginning. God with his people, without sin, with perfect provision. I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. You read Revelations 21, what do you have? A city full of God's people, God dwelling with them, where you don't even need light because of the light of God. The end and the beginning look an awful lot alike. Because it's not one trilogy, and it's not even two trilogies. It's an unfolding story of our redemption to call a people to himself. And that is our reason to have hope and light and life because God is calling himself, calling us to himself too. Let's pray. Gracious God, I get excited when I think about the whole story. That from every disobedience like Jonah, every little misunderstanding like Moses, every little failure like even David, and you have not given up on us. So when we get too angry, when we disobey, when we lie, we know that your grace is displayed in us because of what you have done for us. Not because of something we do, not because of something we are, but because all along you have had a plan to redeem us. Thank you for being that hope to us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for calling us your own. In Jesus' name, amen.